During my first few years in grade school, my athletic future in soccer was determined. It was in first grade. And uh, we were playing soccer as uh, children during recess at school. And very quickly it became apparent that I had very little talent with my feet. And so the general attitude was gringo, vai pro gol. Gringo, go to the goal. Go somewhere where you can use your hands and get out of our way so we can actually play the sport as it's intended to be played. So I was stuck as a goalie all growing up and through my high school years. But then I moved to the United States. And in college there, I had the opportunity to play on an intramural team. And the truth is that the goalkeeper on that team was much better than I was. So I got to play for the first time using my feet. But of course, they put me on defense. Um, nobody grows up dreaming of being a defender in soccer. There's no little child playing on the street or playing on the little neighborhood field that dreams of being a zaguero, that dreams of being able to be on the back line. That just doesn't happen. They all dream of being up at the front, scoring the goals, being Pelé, being Neymar. Um, and to be quite honest, I wasn't that different. Um, and so during our games that we would have, uh, I found myself always drifting farther and farther forward, you know? <laughs> and leaving this gaping hole at the back. And I remember the goalie, who was one of my roommates, used to say to me, look, you leave me totally exposed back there, but I had this tunnel vision because I wanted to score. It was like the dream of my life to score a goal. And this wasn't even intercollegiate sports. This was just, you know, as we would say in Portuguese, varzia. You know, this was, there wasn't even, there was nothing great about what I was playing. But as the, the season went on, I drifted farther and far, farther forward and I came back less and less and less. And what actually ended up happening is that I would expose our defense, I would expose our goal, and inevitably at some point, because of my lack of attention, the other team would score on us. When we do not know or we refuse to accept our roles, then confusion and dissension, and in the case of athletics, losing occurs. As we have worked our way through the first nine chapters of the book of Acts, we have seen over and over again the priority given to the verbal proclamation of the gospel. The early church understood their calling to be witnesses of Christ's truth and of his resurrection. And they took that calling very seriously, but also joyfully. We have heard that calling applied to us as well. We are Christ's witnesses, whether we embrace that responsibility or not. But this account we're going to look at today will help us to understand the different roles in gospel proclamation. Just as with soccer or any other sport, when roles are confused or they're not well identified uh, or they're not understood, then confusion and failure result. So today I'm going to be reading an account of two miracles, two miracles um, that involve the Apostle Peter. And uh, the first one is a miracle of healing. The second one is a miracle of bringing someone back from the dead. And we want to understand what these two accounts, why Luke has put them 
in this context and what he's saying to us about roles in the proclamation of the gospel. So I'll be reading chapter 9 of Acts, beginning with verse 32 through the end of the chapter. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying, showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. There are three roles that I would like us to grasp today. The first is Christ's role. The second is our role. And the third one might seem a little awkward, but here it is. The role of acts of service in the proclamation of the gospel. So again, we're looking at roles that have to do with proclaiming Jesus' truth. Christ's role, our role, and the role of acts of service. We'll begin with Christ's role. In these two accounts of miracles performed by Peter, I want us to note clearly everything that points to the power and authority of Jesus. In fact, I don't even think it's accurate to say that these miracles were performed by Peter. They were performed through Peter. As the author of this book, Luke gives us five indications that the power and authority that come from these miracles or that, that enact these miracles and then the transformation that results do not come from Peter, but come from Jesus. It's clear that even Peter himself is under no illusion that this power is his or that he is responsible for the incredible results. So the role of Christ in the proclamation of the gospel is that of authority and power. That is Christ's role, authority and power. Here are the five indications that points to this truth. The first has to do with this phrase in verse 32 that in, in this version of the NIV is rendered the Lord's people. The Lord's people, that, that Peter is visiting the Lord's people. Most other translations 
uh, interpret that phrase as the saints, the saints. And that's actually what it is literally in Greek is the saints. Peter is visiting the saints. Here's something interesting about that word. In the New Testament, it is never used in its singular form. So no individual is ever referred to as a saint. It is only used to describe the people of God corporately, saints. When we hear someone called a saint, what do we mean by that? I'm talking about in our our contemporary context. What do we mean? Generally, it means that we think that person is extra holy and extra good and extra virtuous. Wow, they are a saint. But that's not the way that scripture uses the word to refer to believers, to brothers and sisters in Christ, to the church. It has nothing to do with what those individuals do. So it doesn't look at that person and elevate them because they are extra good, extra special, extra unique, extra virtuous. It's actually the opposite. When scripture uses the word saints to refer to the church, it is drawing attention to the fact that Jesus is responsible for their position. Because there's nothing that we could do In fact, to become saints, there's nothing that comes from inside of us that makes us worthy for anything, that makes us greater, that makes us more holy. It is everything that comes from outside of us through Jesus. They are saints. We are saints because Jesus died for us and redeemed us through his blood, not because we are so good or so holy or so exceptional. So by describing the church in this context as saints, Luke is actually drawing our attention to the work of Jesus, his redemption, his salvation, his power, his goodness, not ours. Here's the second indicator. As Peter enters Aeneas's room, this man who's been crippled for eight years, he's been bedridden, what does he say to Aeneas? I heal you? No, he doesn't even say, I heal you in Jesus' name. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. Even though Peter is the conduit through whom the healing flows, he refuses to take credit for it, though he so easily could have. I think I would have been tempted to take the credit at least inside. You know, on the outside, say, well, it's all glory to God. But on the inside, yes, yeah, say, yeah, that was pretty cool. I did that internally. Uh, it's well documented here at Calvary that I both enjoy making brownies as well as eating them. And a, a few months ago, this, this, I'm also showing you some of my own um, darkness of heart and selfishness when I say this, when I tell this story. But um, we, I don't remember the context, but Julie and I were at a party or a gathering, um, and I had made brownies and taken them, and they were there. And I overheard someone come up to Julie and say, boy, those brownies are so good. Thank you for making them. Thank you for bringing them. And I was like, (laughs) and she didn't give me credit. She's usually really good about that, but this time she was just like, oh, you know, you're welcome, you know. And, you know, inside I'm like, I made those. 
So in, in addition to revealing my, my selfishness, the, the point that I want to actually illustrate here is that Peter is very quick to give credit where credit is due. Jesus heals you, Aeneas. I'm a conduit. I am his messenger. He has chosen to do it through me, but the healing is his. The power and the authority are his. And we also just catch a brief glimpse into the fact that Peter's not using Jesus' name there to, to manipulate God. We try to do that sometimes. You know, maybe if I say this in Jesus' name, it will force Jesus to do what I want him to do. That's not the case. Peter is simply affirming a fact. You're healed. Jesus did it. Here's the third indicator. We're told twice in this passage that many new people became believers. So after Aeneas' healing in Lydda, many people, everyone who saw him, it says everyone who saw him believed, everyone who saw him came to the Lord. And then after Tabitha or Dorcas is, is raised from the dead, then again, this became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. This is actually a test of any ministry, I think. Where does the glory and the credit go? Does it go to a person? So does it build Peter's kingdom? Um, are many more followers drawn to Peter? That's not what the text says. The focus and the credit and the glory go to Jesus. New believers come to him. New souls join the kingdom of God. Then we get to the fourth indicator. Peter, uh, after he is summoned, travels to Joppa, modern-day Jaffa, and he goes into Dorcas's room, the substairs room, and what does he do before, he, before she is raised from the dead? He says he got down on his knees and he prayed. Peter is fully aware that the power and authority come from Christ. And he places himself at Christ's disposal. Doesn't do anything on his own. The power and authority of healing come from Christ. Now, the fifth and final indication is, is one that I, I really enjoyed seeing, the parallels. Uh, you might have noticed in this account of Dorcas being raised from the dead that it sounds very similar to another miraculous event that's recorded in Scripture. In Mark 5, Jesus raises a young girl from the dead. Do you remember that story? She was the daughter of a synagogue ruler. His name was Jairus. And Jairus had come seeking Jesus because his daughter was dying. She was at death's door. Jesus goes with him, but then along the way, from a human perspective, Jesus gets distracted. A woman touches the hem of his garment and she's healed immediately, but he realizes that power has gone out of him. And so he stops and he has this incredible interchange with the woman. Meanwhile, I can imagine that Jairus and, and his servants are come, Jesus, come on, you're missing the point, come on. And as, just as Jesus finishes addressing this woman, a messenger arrives from Jairus's home and says, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter has died. And Jesus turned to Jairus and says, only believe. 
Come with me. Anyway, they go to Jairus' home and we begin to hear the exact same phrases and the exact same practices that Peter employs with Dorcas. So Jesus goes into the inner room and he kicks everybody else out. There are all the mourners there and he kicks them all out. And the only ones that are with him are Peter, James, and John. So we know, Mark tells us specifically that those three went in with Jesus. So we know that Peter was watching all this. And then what does Jesus do? He says to the girl in Aramaic, Talita kum, which means little girl, get up. And then what does he do? He takes her by the hand and helps her to her feet. Now we see Peter, years later, encountering a similar situation. And follow it through, what does he do? He goes into the upper room where the body is laid out. He sends everybody out. He kicks them all out. He prays. And then he says to her, and it only differs, even in Aramaic, it differs by one letter, the difference between Talita and Tabitha. And he says, Tabitha, kum. Tabitha, get up. And he takes her by the hand and raises her from the dead and then from the bed, right? Why do I draw our attention to this? What is Peter doing? He is imitating the Messiah. He, is, he has seen Jesus and he is following in Christ's footsteps. I don't know what was going through Peter's mind, but I can imagine he's like, oh, I've seen something like this before. I've seen this before. Okay, Jesus, I remember what you did. I know how you work. Let's go. And we know that we are called to be imitators of Christ. And this is a, a clear fashion in which Peter does this. He imitates Jesus. And by imitation shows that he understands the authority and the power come from Jesus. Jesus is the one who has walked this path before him. The power and authority in gospel proclamation come from Christ alone. But that brings us to the question of what is our role? If Christ's role is power and authority, what about us? And what is Luke saying about the believers in this passage? You see, there have been many, many people throughout history, and I think probably most of us at some point in our walk with Jesus um, when we may see a certain success uh, in ministry, and I'm not talking just about formal ministry, but I'm even talking about individual witness or relationships. And when we see that, we begin to have some of that success, we might start to get a little confused about what is God's role and what is our role. And we're tempted to see that power and authority coming from within us or from our own virtue, or that we are the source of the effectiveness of that ministry. When that happens, disaster results. I uh, am not going to belabor this point. You have seen me use the example of the wheelbarrow race that I participated in with my dad when I was younger, the one where my dad would grab my ankles and we would... You know, he would walk and I would pat my hands across the ground and then how someone taught us the strategy where my dad would actually move forward and grab me under the thighs. So he would take all the weight 
and all I had to do was pat the ground. The first time we ever employed that strategy in a race, we were winning by far. And I remember, I was thinking, I'm, <laughs> I was a young kid, more confession time, I was thinking, I'm pretty good at this. But, I mean, it's a little kid, but I'm thinking, pa, 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 pa. you know, it's not costing me anything, but we're winning. I'm pretty good at this. And uh, I didn't know what happened. I didn't see what happened because it happened behind me. We were about to cross the finish line and my dad stepped in a little hole in the grass, turned his ankle, and we both fell flat. And we lost. I don't know if at that point God was trying to reveal to me a great truth about, you know, who has the authority and the power and the proclamation of the gospel. But regardless, there was a reminder, you know what? It really wasn't about you. And um, as soon as the person who was carrying all the weight, as soon as they were no longer able to fulfill their role, your role was meaningless. <laughs> so, what is the role of the believer? Because without the authority and power of Christ, our role is empty and ineffective. Now, simply put, Luke is, is showing us in this passage that one of the primary roles of the believer is humble service. Humble acts of service. It's through simple acts of, severe, of sincere service to others, motivated by love for God and obedience to him, that we may become the conduit of the transforming power and authority of Jesus. It's his power that adds souls to his kingdom and adds children to the family of God, saving them from sin, death, and hell, and ushering them into eternal life. So how do we participate in that process? What do we see reflected here in Acts 9? What is the evidence of service that we see? First of all, we see this in Peter in his travels. If there was ever someone that could be considered a rock star of the early church, it was Peter. He was the undisputed leader of the apostles in Jerusalem. He was the one chosen to preach to thousands on Pentecost. And he, along with John, was the one who confronted the Sanhedrin. He was imprisoned more than once. And he was the one who received and discipled Saul. He was the one that, to whom an angel appeared while he was in prison and released him, literally directly an angel, released him and walked him out of prison right through the guards into freedom. And then when the text here says that Peter traveled around the country to visit the Lord's people, we need to understand that this was not a modern day business trip. There was nothing glamorous about this kind of travel. There were no first or business class seats on airplanes. There were no five-star hotels or limousines to pick the Christian celebrity up at the airport. There were only long, hot, dusty roads with uncertain accommodation at the end of each journey. Yet this is what Peter, the hero, the leader of the church, has set about to do in order to encourage the church and also to evangelize those who have not yet heard. Then, after he has healed uh, Aeneas in, um, in Lydda, these men come to him from Jaffa 
and they beg him, please come with us because this dear sister has died. Now, Lydda is approximately 10 miles, um, so maybe 16 kilometers or so. Um, no, that's not right. Um, anyway, I'll do the math later. Um, so uh, about 10 miles, that's a long way, uh, from one to the other. And Peter immediately embarks upon that journey. Right away, he says, okay, I'll go. And he walks, and, and remember, it's not, you know, they didn't send a car to pick him up. Um, they didn't even send a mule, as far as we know. Uh, so Peter went with them, an act of, of willing service to a sister in Christ. But it wasn't just to a sister in Christ, it was to the community. It was the community that had called him. That's not celebrity ministry, right? It's humble, sacrificial service. Now I want us to consider Dorcas herself, Tabitha. Uh, how much emphasis in this passage is placed on her character and her acts of service. She was beloved of all the people, especially those with the lowest social standing, the poor and the widows. These are the people that are bemoaning her death, that are grieving her absence. Why? Because she had loved them. She had served them. She had given them, made clothes for them. And she's held as an example of this attitude of humble service. She's not doing this service to those who can return the favor. She has been serving those who cannot return the favor. Although the text does not specifically say so, it is implied that her character and the way she blessed so many people is the reason that Jesus raised her through Peter. Her service is held up as an example to us. Finally, we have another indication of humility and service, and that's at the very end, actually the last phrase of this passage that tells us that Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. That might not mean very much to us today if we don't understand the context, but to those reading Luke's account 2,000 years ago, this would have caught their attention. A tanner's job was to take the skin of dead animals and turn those skins into useful leather. It was a filthy process, and for some Jews, they even considered it an unclean occupation because the tanner was constantly in contact with the bodies of dead animals. The smells of a tannery were overpowering and awful. I did a little research, even modern day tanneries, they're always located far from, or relatively far from human population because the smells are so terrible and because they pollute the water and the environment so horribly. So listen to this description. The sheep or goat skins are smeared on the flesh side with a paste of slaked lime and then folded up and allowed to stand until the hair loosens. So right there, get some skins from animals that still have some flesh on it, put some you know, slaked lime on it, and then roll them up and leave them in the sun. Just to you know, settle in a little bit. The hair and fleshy matter are then removed. The skins are plumped in lime, basted then in a concoction first of dog dung, and afterward with fermenting bran. And after drying, the leather is blackened on one side by rubbing on a solution made by boiling vinegar 
with old nails or pieces of copper. So <laughs> this is just an incredible bouquet of, of, of smells, right? I mean, between dog dung, fermenting bran, boiling vinegar, um, lime, and you, get the, you get the picture. So why, why do I go into all this detail? Where is Peter? The icon of the early church. Where does he choose to stay during his time in Joppa? With a tanner. It doesn't give us a lot of detail why. But I find it very difficult to imagine that there were not other options for Peter. That if Peter had simply said, hey man, I'm Peter. I'm going to stay at a tanner's place. I want to deal with that stench. Come on, I'm traveling. I'm tired. I need to be able to rest. I need to be able to be restored. We don't know the context, but we do know that on Peter's part, there was a, an attitude of humility and of service of willing to, to minister for the good of the individual and of the community. So, in this context, you may have noticed that Luke does not say anything about preaching or proclamation in these two stories. Now, I think there was proclamation. I think there was teaching. I think there was evangelism. Because without it, all these people could not have come to the Lord. And what I mean by that is they may have been attracted to Christ because they saw the miracle, because they saw someone who had been dead walking around again alive. Absolutely, that would pique interest. That would make me want to know more. But for them to know who Jesus was, for them to know that he had died, that he had risen again, for them to know that they needed to repent of their sins to truly enter into the kingdom of God, there would have had to have been some teaching. But the fact that Luke leaves that out is interesting. Because up until this point, most of the emphasis has been on speaking and proclaiming verbally and audibly. So what's going on? I think this brings us to our third role. What is the role of acts of service in the proclamation of the gospel? Simply put, Acts of service, so humbly ministering to the temporal felt needs of others is part of the gospel. And because of that, part of gospel proclamation. As I said, Luke draws our attention to this by not mentioning preaching or teaching. He only shows the miracles and the acts of service. It's a reminder to us to serve, to serve our brothers and sisters, but also to serve those outside the family of God. I don't want to make too much out of something that is not stated in this passage, but at no point are we told that Aeneas was a believer. We weren't told he wasn't, but we weren't told that he was. Much is made, on the other hand, of the fact that Tabitha was a believer and that she did belong to the church. So it's possible that Luke is saying here that reaching out to the broader community with acts of service is part of gospel proclamation. But there's an inherent danger here. Although in this, in this context, the miracles and the acts of service have opened the doorway for gospel proclamation, they arrived at gospel proclamation. 
And the danger here is one that we see far too often in our contemporary context. Many well-meaning Christians focus on the acts of service but never arrive at gospel proclamation. But there's also the opposite extreme. Those who have so disregarded acts of service and focused only on proclamation that they have lost credibility because they're no longer showing the love and concern that Jesus showed. There's balance in the gospel. Service is essential, but proclamation is supreme. We must not have either one, either one rather, without the other. They go hand in hand. They are part of the gospel. You've heard me use the example before of the burning car. The woman trapped in the burning car and my friend who goes, who, who ran to pull her out and did pull her out and rescue her. I've used that in the past to describe the importance of gospel proclamation, meaning what's her greatest need at that point? Not, she might be hot, she might need a drink, but that's not her greatest need, right? Her greatest need is to be saved from the fire. But I want to also turn that back the other way so that we look at it from the other perspective, which is to say, my friend doesn't look in there and say, are you a Christian? As the flames are engulfing the car. Are you a Christian? Do you know Jesus? No? Well, here, let me share the gospel with you real quickly, okay? Can you follow with me? Can you focus? Because I don't want to pull you out. I don't want to serve you if you're not going to become a Christian. Of course, both of those are extremes. But that's exactly what I'm saying. We need to have equilibrium and understand that acts of service are one of the ways that Jesus makes us conduits for his power and his authority. In Luke 4, Jesus goes to a synagogue. This is early in his earthly ministry. And he opens a scroll of Isaiah and he reads these words to the people who are gathered there. What does he read? The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll and he looks at all the people there and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. I get chills thinking about that. But you know what we do with that passage? Most of us go to one extreme or another. There's the camp that says, no, 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 everything Jesus is describing there is spiritual. He came to preach freedom to spiritual captives. He came to preach freedom to those who are spiritually oppressed. He came to preach the year of the Lord's favor to those who become children, daughters, and sons of God, and so their favor will be eternally in heaven. But then there's the opposite extreme where you say, see what Jesus is doing here? He's only talking about stuff on earth. He's talking about people who are oppressed by governments, by corrupt systems. He is preaching about those who are captive um, in human slavery, those who are captives here on earth. Brothers and sisters, why can't it be both? 
And it is. It is both. But the, but the, the challenge that I bring before us again is each of us is going to tend more to one side than to the other. And I put myself in this with you. And we need to find our balance of the role of acts of service in gospel proclamation in Jesus. We can't have the service without the gospel. And we can't have the proclamation without the gospel either, without the service. They are joined together. So as each of us is tempted to one extreme or another, we must do two things. First, we need to have a clear understanding that Jesus is the power and authority of the gospel and that sharing his truth through words will always be essential to our calling. But secondly, we must also not forget the role of humble acts of service motivated by the love of Christ. These acts can make us conduits for the transformative power of Jesus. These acts can open the way for us to have an opportunity to proclaim and to be heard. I also want to draw attention briefly to some of the missions that we support as a church. We, we support a number of missions that minister to temporal needs of people. Lar Nefesh, Lar Tia and Lar Efrata are all homes for children who are at risk. Casa Esperança, you've heard a lot about Casa Esperança recently. It's a home for single refugee women and their children, providing shelter, providing clothing, providing food, providing legal help as they get established um, for a new life in a new country. ABBA is an organization that ministers to children at risk and runs, among other things, a foster care program. They also run a house that provides even academic support and communal support for children from low-income families in the area. Servi is a crisis pregnancy center fighting on the front lines to save the lives of the unborn. These are all missions that we as a church support, and I may have forgotten some others, left some others out. But each of these missions is also committed to gospel proclamation. And that's why I, I take so much joy in, in knowing that we support them because I see in them a balance where they are ministering to the neediest of the needy and at the same time are presenting the truth of Jesus and his love, his death, his resurrection, his call to repentance, and then his offer of eternal life and redemption. And that's important to us as a church body that we and the ministries we support are committed to all of the gospel. Now, I'm gonna add something here at the very end. I'm tagging it on at the end that uh, I'm not going to do justice to in the time that we have, but I'm going to address it. Should we pray for people to rise from the dead? Should we pray for people to be healed in the name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I don't find any place in scripture that tells us not to. I don't find a single bit of evidence that Jesus says to his followers, do not pray for the miraculous. Do not pray for healing. I don't, I don't see any place that says that Jesus says do not pray for people to be raised from the dead. 
Now, of course, even in Scripture, we have to understand that particularly accounts of people being raised from the dead are by far the exception. Um, you know, we have five, maybe six examples in the New Testament. Um, so they're the exception, but just because something is the exception doesn't mean that God doesn't have the power to do that. And I believe that when we talk about, um, particularly in the New Testament, gifts of healing, that people have gifts of healing, Paul talks about those. Uh, if, if we get into those and really study them, I, I don't think, my understanding is that they don't have gifts of healing, it's that they have, God has given them a particular grace of faith to pray for those things. Faith that I may not have. But God gives some people the faith to pray for those things, to ask God for those things. And if God has given you the faith to pray for healing, and even to pray for someone to rise from the dead, ask him. But what's the point? We are praying in his name according to his will, because the power is not ours. The power is his. The power and authority is his. Our responsibility is to serve and to speak. To speak truth, to serve the brothers and sisters in Christ, to serve our communities. Why? So that the gospel may be proclaimed.